the, regi the registrar is typically the one person who's going to be seeing everything kind of come together. Competition organizer may, but the registrar is always going to have this very, very um, deep down. Um, but the rest of the staff at least has a chance of potentially not. Okay, moving along. Uh, number seven, an individual with knowledge of the association between entries and entries may not serve as a judge. That's true. That's true. Okay. A member of the competition staff with access to information by associates. Entries with entrance must serve as a judge, provided this person does not divulge information about entries and entries. Okay, that's false. Yeah, once again, no judging. It, it goes back to the standards basically for organizing a BJCP competition is it has to be blind judging. And anything that violates a blind judging is going to invalidate the competition. Uh, right, go ahead. Uh, nine, the head judge at a table should try to do the apprentice or lower rank judges if time permits. Uh, sure. Yep, yep, always take a little time to help. Okay. The steward at the table has sole responsibility for completing the cover sheets for beers in each flight. Uh, true. That's false. And this is kind of going to get into a little trick question. Uh, and it goes in, well, <laughs> let's go to 11 right, right now. Me? Okay. The head judge at the table has sole responsibility for completing the cover sheets and beer, for the beers in each flight. And for the yeah, it's yeah. true. And then the catch to that, that kind of drift you up, was that they can sometimes delegate that as long as people are okay with that to the stewards. But it's technically speaking the head judge's responsibility. And very rarely will you see in competitions uh, yeah. the, the steward, you know, filling out the cover sheet. Usually the, the head judge is, is taking responsibility of putting, yep. putting that stuff in. Mm -hmm. okay. uh, the head judge at a table should fill out cover sheets for beers in his or her flight as directed by competition management. True? Yep, that's true. And maybe we'll even have preferences, but sometimes there aren't going to be cover sheets either. So um, all depends on the competition. Yeah, there's at least going to be there's going to be some sort of collation of information mm -hmm. beyond just the. They're responsible for pulling it together in the flight summary sheets in particular. Exactly. Yeah. Um, we're at thirteen. It, the head judge at the table has no responsibility for filling out cover sheets for beers in his or her flight unless directed to do so by the competition management, and that is false. Yeah. Okay. Head judge at the table has the sole responsibility for completing the cover sheets for the beers in each flight, but with the agreement of the steward, may delegate the completion of the cover sheets to the steward, and that's true. And that's almost the one that you just need to remember. Yeah. But only with the steward's agreement can it be passed off. Mm -hmm. The head judge, with the agreement of the steward, may delegate filing cover sheets for his beers in his or her flight to his steward. Yep. <coughs> There's no need for the head judge to complete the flight summary sheet. The competition organizer can obtain all that information from the cover sheets. False? That's false. Unless you don't like the competition organizer, in which case you're all good. Right. Uh, Seventeen. If possible, there should be at least one BJCP uh, rank judge in every flight. Uh, that should be true. Yep. And that, in particular, relates to a BJCP competition. Okay. Other competitions may not really need a BJCP competition, but when it's your program, you're going to say that. Uh, when non-DJCP judges evaluate entries in the competition, each non-DJCP judge should be paired with a DJCP judge. That would be true. Yep. 
non-BJCP judges may not evaluate entries if authorized by the judge director. Non-BJCP judges should be paired with BJCP judges when possible. True. That's true. Yep. To reduce straight odors and flavors present, beverages and foods other than water, bread, or crackers should not be brought to the judging table. That's not true. Yeah. Kimchi, all those other mm -hmm. things. So. Okay. <laughs> oh no, 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 okay. Actually, no. We're just going to go through twenty today. We're going to go through twenty each day, um, and yeah, we'll just keep moving through. So you can research that this week. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So once again, the, the key themes today was kind of maintaining judging integrity. Um, who, who's in charge of filling out cover sheets, and then we basically how we pair start pairing up judges. Uh, once again, trying to provide balance within the flights, trying to keep judging integrity, and delegating as appropriate and not forcing people to do stuff. Okay, so uh, now if you want to take the new handout, we gave you the BJCP exam program description. This used to be kind of embedded in the study guide, which is why I didn't realize it wasn't in there anymore. So we'll walk through this, and then we'll, uh, we'll look at that little, uh, well, it'll, it'll provide some context to that other sheet that we gave you. Okay, so if you want to open up, go to page one. It gives the overview of why, or like why we they created this whole program to start in the beginning, how they've actually started uh, fractioning it off into beer, cider, and mead. Um, okay, so down at the bottom of the first page, uh, we this is I think this is still going to make it onto the the new exam. They they've just restructured this in 2014. Um, so the purpose of the BJCP is to encourage knowledge, understanding, and appreciation of the world's diverse beer, mead, and cider styles. Um, two, to promote and recognize an advanced beer, mead, and cider tasting, evaluation, and communication skills. And three, developed standardized tools, methods, and processes for the structured evaluation, ranking, and feedback of beer, mead, and cider. Um, I think for, if you ever take the written exam, you're going to be required to write those down pretty much verbatim. They will probably pop up as questions potentially on the, um, the online exam. Um, but historically, you've kind of had to memorize those uh, just so you can understand the BGCP, which is why that was on the, the question sheet. Okay, so then it goes into, uh, it focuses, it starts out with the, the three, or it goes into the different kind of meat or beer meat exams that are currently set up. So I do the beer exam, gives a little overuse, explaining how in the past it was taking forever, or it was all one test and it was taking forever to get um, feedback back to everyone, so they altered the program to make it a little faster and more complicated. Um, so now you've got basically the three major uh, portions of it. So you have the BGCP beer judge entrance examination, which is that web-based one that you'll uh, take true, false, multiple choice, fill in the uh, blank have to pass that in order to take the tasting exam. Then you have the tasting exam, and that's the six beers evaluated in uh, one hour against uh, what the proctors uh, are tasting during the same time, um, or sorry, 90 minutes. Uh, so basically, that's what we're hoping to get to at the end of this class. Um, and then the written proficiency exam, which is basically half of the old written portion of the exam, which is you have you, which you can only take once you've scored eighty percent on the tasting exam. You've gotten ten judging points. Then you can sign up for for this and start uh, taking that long essay, which talk has true and false parts. It's got um, just long essays doing style comparisons and um, technical and then recipe formulation. 
Um, all of the things that will be covered on the exam, that future exam, if you ever choose to take it, we'll cover with, within this course, but um, we're really kind of focusing on the tasting part. Yeah, and just so, I mean, basically the percentage that you get coming out of the exam is what your, you know, your rank, uh, with the exception of the, the requirement to, to actually have experience points um, for do, from doing judging, but, you know, 60 is the uh, minimum to, to get a passing score. Otherwise, you're known as an apprentice. Mm -hmm. um, above 60, uh, up to 70, you're a recognized beer judge. 70 to 80 uh, with uh, is it five five judging points. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, uh, fine, never mind. Don't worry. <laughs> so in the past, uh, your written and your tasting would be averaged at a ratio of 70 to 30, um, but... Now it's 50-50 if you've made it to the point. If you've made it. So basically, they, you know, to get national now, you have to take the written portion of the exam, which requires a combined score of over 80%. So you've got to at least start out with a tasting score of over, of over, over 80 before they allow you or force you to, to take the written essay portion. Um, yeah. So that's, that's just their way of simplifying the beginning process so that you're not being punished for sitting down and trying to come into the program and, mm -hmm. and taste beer and do it well. So, um, yeah, so after that, what, if you've taken the written, now it's 50-50 mix of judging and your written scores, and you need, and we'll get to the point table in just a bit, and then it's still all the uh, accumulation points as well. Um, we talked for a little while about the, the meat exam, um, which we're not going to be covering this. Then it moves into how you actually figure out uh, your judge rank, um, and it's got the, the catches. They had to come up with these little trans, this trans, uh, where they're basically sw switching over. Like we want to have these old judges who who tried to get in but didn't quite get in. How are we going to come for them? Um, and so they have a kind of a two win two year window of this grace period um, where they transferred everyone over, and now they're kind of solidly into the the new program. So, hey, once again, for that next section, I pray to God it's not covered on the online exam in terms of the details of how the transition worked. Um, but then if you go to, it explains how you get to the different levels in there. So getting from nothing to a real judge, um, from getting from a recognized to certified to national and higher. Okay, so then on page seven is the kind of the big master table, and that's what we were uh, kind of alluded to within that little table that we had right there. So you've got your, your official ranks. Okay, so now there's apprentice, recognized, certified, national, master, grandmaster, and additional grandmaster level. Um, those are the official ranks. Um, provisional isn't really a rank. Um, it's just a status, and non-BJCP is not a rank either, okay? Um, so apprentice uh, basically is the person who passed the online exam, um, but then got less than a 60 on their um, tasting exam, okay? So they're in this kind of provisionary status. Um, so they can, they can do that with no experience points as long as that has happened or those things have happened, you're, you're good to go. There's no, and the GMSR is the Grand Master Service Requirement. These are things that you do to support the overall program, like administer exams, grade exams, be a member of their board and representatives and all that kind of stuff. So rec uh, recognized is passed the online exam, um, scored at least a 60, um, and uh, have you can at that point you can have zero experience points. Um, certified has scored at least a 70 on the online or on the tasting exam, 
and has also earned um, five uh, minimum tasting points, half of which, and this is true for all the remaining ranks, half of which have to come from judging points, not um, non-judging points. Uh, and, and this goes on to explain how you actually build up points as well. All right, so national, a minimum score of 80, so they've actually had to take the, the written exam, um, so the, the legacy essay, or the newer legacy essay. And uh, they have at least 20 points, half of which have to come from judging points. Um, and then you have master, which is someone who's gotten a 90 on the um, composite score from the tasting and the, the written. They've done at least one of the written exams, and they have to have at least 40 points, half of which have to come from uh, judging. And they do not have to have a grandmaster server requirement. Anything that has a grandmaster in it does have to have a service requirement added on to it. So it's you have to have 100 points, half of which, once again, have that minimum 90 score, have taken that on the written test, and have done, and it's like 240 points worth for each level um, of, the, of GSMR. And the details of building up those points are a separate kind of document. Um, they also got two other, um, two other ranks Honorary master and honorary grandmaster, these are just kind of things that they can do for people who've been a part of the industry for a long, long time and served um, well. Okay, so that table is worthwhile remem or memorizing because uh, I'm pretty sure stuff like that gets covered on the exam. Um, then you get to the advancing in the B BJCP. There's the advancing through your test score and then advancing through your test score combined with the experience points as well. So every time you do something that's BJCP sanctioned, you have the opportunity to earn points. Um, if you go to page nine, it starts to get into a little more of the detailed breakdown of everything that you could do to earn some points. Organizers, they get points for being the head of the competition, depending on the size of the, size of the competition. Judges, and this is going to be important to you, um, if you go to participate in an event, you will earn at least one point. Um, days are usually broken into sessions, um, so you typically earn a half point per session, once again, up to that minimum of one point, and then up to a maximum of 1.5 per day. So if you judge one session in a day, you're still going to get one point. If you judge two sessions, you're going to get one point. If you judge three or more, you're just going to get 1.5 points for that day. If you serve on a BOS panel, um, there's a certain number of people who are eligible to do that, depending on the size of the BOS panel, you can get a bonus half point um, that can be awarded, and this is in excess of the points that were previously um, talked about. Those are all judging points in particular. The organizer points, those are non-judging points because he's not judging. Stewards get a half point per day with a maximum of one point per the overall competition. Um, so, uh, but those, once again, non-judging points. And then there's staff points, which every competition is allocated a certain number of points to give to people as a thank you for helping with entry processing or a registrar. Um, depending on the size, again, it tells you how many staff points you had. The next page um, has the size of the entries and how many maximum points that are allocated to the organizer, to the staff, and to the judges. There's kind of a cap on um, how many points the judge can get for an overall competition. Um, so you don't need to memorize that table. It's just good stuff for you guys to know. goes into some definitions of um, the, the overall framework so that there's not too much confusion. What's a flight versus a session versus a BOS round? What's a mini BOS round? Who, who does what? Um, so good stuff to him in there. Um, and then exam administration stuff, and that's not really too important. Um, for, your, for you guys as well. So 
there's about five or so pages in here that are worthwhile to just make sure that you understand. Once again, understanding, trying to memorize what the program uh, BJCP goals are, um, just getting a good understanding of what your general process is to getting into the system, and then getting a uh, understanding of the judge requirements in terms of how many, what scores I need to have and what, um, how many points I need to have. So any questions on that? Would you talk about the Grandmaster's service? It doesn't, so there's a separate document that talks about how many points you get for GSMR activities. What are those activities? Uh, the big one is there's a minimum of you have to uh, grade 50 or have 50 exam grading points, or no, yeah. grade 50 exams. That's just um, point for me. Because uh, no. you can earn two points for an exam. Right. Oh, you only have to grade 25. So that's the big catch because they're trying to get people active in the, in the grading pool. Um, you know, the proctoring an exam, running an exam, uh, running a set of courses like this um, gives. I don't think we do. I thought well, no, that, we get CEP for this. Uh, doesn't that sound? No, that's uh, not that's not, don't ask me. Yeah. Uh, so there's also it. I guess it doesn't. There's also continuing education points that you can get for like if you come back, like Jerome. Okay, Jerome's an existing judge. If he comes back and takes classes like this, he can earn. Point two points per each session that he comes to is a way to make sure that people are keeping active and and increasing their knowledge. Increasing knowledge, um, it, they're not judging points, but um, but, yeah. but then you know the people are in GMSR for being uh, exam directors, assistant exam directors on the BGC board, um, you know, serving as in roles for the BGCP. Um, it's basically a service. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so anything that helps advance their program through their structure kind of is what falls into that. Yeah. Um, any other questions? Okay. All right. Okay. With that, we're going to get into the exciting topic of malts. All right. So if you want to pull out your the handout we gave you for malt and malting. I guess I don't know what it looks like. Okay, we're starting malt, malt and malt. Um, refresh me, uh, who's who's a non-brewer? Okay. Um, so I, we, we tried to frame the, the the topics in a way that we could also pair up the general concepts with an interesting, like if it's a recipe-specific topic, we tried to follow, or sorry, an ingredient-specific topic, we tried to follow it up with some um, beers that would maybe accentuate our, our perception of those. So like today we're going to cover a bunch of malt-focused um, beers. I think next time we get into uh, yeast and water, so we, we picked a, a, a few different ones that will show a little. we got wheat beers, American ales, European ones that will show a little of the breath that yeast can bring. We get into hops and we talk about IPAs. So um, today we're going to start kind of with the, the core ingredient of malt, um, which is uh, apart from water, kind of one of the basis of where we're going to get to, need to get to go to get to a, a, a beerish product. Um, most of these uh, documents are just pulled kind of strictly straight out of the um, the uh, study guide. Um, but one of the things that we do up front is for people who do end up going on to take the written exam, uh, providing that they don't change the questions too much, and I don't know if they would change these questions too much. We may start off with something we call a core question, um, which is one of the exact questions that's on the exam. So this one is kind of the um, explain the malting process, identifying and describing different kinds of malts, 
um, by their color, the flavor they impart, um, and let's talk about the beer styles that you may end up seeing these with. So we tried to flavor the conversation a little to help answer those questions, but we still move through the material that's uh, covered in the guidance, uh, study guide pretty well. Um, as we go through these, you may randomly see sections that are darker or in bold. Um, those may be areas that we, this, this, this one might not actually have too many. Those may be parts that we think specifically help address the, the core question being asked. Um, but okay, so basically we're starting, we, we want to make beer. Um, beer, the one critical definition of beer is that it's going to be derived from malted grains. I mean, that's what defines beer. If it's got too many apples in it, it's a cider. Um, if it's got honey, it's a mead. If it's got malted grains, it's a beer. Um, so when we got malted grains, we're basically stocking, or starting with some sort of a seed that has probably been taken from its nice, I'm still sitting on a, a, a stalk somewhere, to a condition where it's wanting to try to grow, okay? Um, because when something is trying to grow, there are certain chemical things that happen that change the grain um, that make it more accessible for something, that, or for starches to be extracted and then sugars to be um, decomposed and then something to be fermented because at the end of the day, if we're going to have an alcoholic product, we need to have sugars. Um, so, um, when we go through this whole malting process, this is the beginning of the overall mashing, or the mashing process as well. And so the overall goal is to get something that's going to have a nice flavor profile and be able to work um, by the brewer at the end of the day. Um, so the when we talk about going from that kind of just, I'm a, uh, a seed on, at the, on, on the end of a, a stalk to something that's going to try to grow, um, that, that process of getting into that form is, is something called modification, okay? It's going through this uh, kind of chemical and enzymatic uh, process to become more accessible to uh, the brewing material. Um, historically speaking, and I probably should have brought out some brain for this, um, within, they don't actually have pic pictures, do they? Mm -hmm. um, if you've got your kind of normal kernel, okay, um, you've got this one part that's going to come out, which is going to eventually try to be, grow up into a, a plant on its own because it comes to seed, and that's called the acrosphere. Um, and so when it starts off and it's kind of uh, initialized and not really getting ready to become a plant, it's, it's very short, but then as it starts to find an environment where I, can, I think I could, I could make a plant here, it starts to grow. Um, and so the longer that grows, it, it becomes more and more modified. Um, as a result of this, more conversions within the um, the acrospire have um, taken place. Or sorry, the, the endospire. Right. I mean, it's it's basically starting from one end of the kernel of grain and traveling to the other end of the kernel of grain. Um, and how far it gets along that journey is the degree of modification. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, if it gets halfway, they consider that fifty percent modified. You know, it gets all the way. It's one hundred percent modified. Most grains are going to be you know in the 50 to 75% range. Um, you know, you're trying to maximize the, uh, the amount of conversion that's happened of this, this tough kernel that, that has basically been you know, prepped for doomsday to, to overwinter. And then you know, once the conditions become right, it, it starts to grow again. Mm -hmm. um, but the, more, the, the farther along that you get in the, the modification process towards 100%, you're expending a lot of energy creating rootlets. Um, and you're starting to lose some of the, uh, the carbohydrates. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's, it's sort of a tricky balance that the maltster is going through to create you know, sort of the ideal product to, yeah. to provide uh, the, the right amount of sugar um, and be workable for the brewer. Yeah. 
So it's a, it's, it's a balance of getting the, in, the internal chemicals to the right place where it's useful still for someone else to pick up and then not wasting a whole bunch of extra material for any rootlets and other um, products. Um, so once again, trying to get the most bang for the buck and also make something that tastes good at the end of the day. All right, so then we, if we look into malt selection, there are two basic major types of malt. Um, there's going to be two row and six row. Um, barley. And barley, sorry. Um, and when you look at it, basically when you look at one of the, the, the flowers on, on one of these, you can kind of tell from the top if it's kind of got a nice equally spaced um, hexagon, basically, of, of uh, kernels, or if it's kind of got this little, almost a little flatter kind of look to it. Um, the two row is only going to have two of those uh, flowers on the end, and so the other two are going to be um, a little more side. There are going to be two that are fertile, and the other four, four will be kind of uh, meh. Um, and then six row, all of them are, are fertile. Um, so when you got those two, uh, the two row, they're, they're much bigger kernels. Okay, you've got a bunch of extra yield in there. Um, because they're larger, the surface ratio is um, smaller to what's inside it, so it, it tends to be there's a little... less husk material. Yeah, so you don't get as much of a grainy kind of character from that. Um, on, on the flip side, six row, um, you've got a higher yield, so that makes it a little more per interesting acre. per acre brewery size. Um, and it also has uh, more powerful enzymes with it, with, in it, which may influence how you want to work into the mashing process later, and if you have to pick up adjuncts, these... Uh, enzymes can help work on those adjuncts in addition to fermenting its own kind of or working on its own uh, starches. Um, so kind of a, a, a trade-off between the two. Most craft brewers are going to be working with two-row in general. It tends, tends to be the, the preferred. A lot of the kind of the older classic uh, pills and lighter lagers tend to be six-row. Uh, in America. In America, yeah. Yeah, because they're they want the extra diastatic power. Yeah, um, so they can throw in their corn and their rice, rice. and their yeah. Okay, um, so let's see next. Moving into a little overview of the process of malting. You talk for a sec. Sure. Uh, so you know, like we said, you've got this this kernel that's uh, uh, this grain seed that that's just hanging on, being uh, as innocuous as possible, waiting for the right temperature, um, the right moisture content, uh, you know, to, to come along so it can wake up and, and do its job of growing a whole new barley plant. Uh, so the mulster's job is to create the ideal conditions um, to trick it into growing. Sucker punch it. Yeah, basically. And then, uh, and then when it gets uh, as far along as the mulster wants, to halt that process um, by drying, uh, drying the grain back out. Um. So what they're going to basically, and it's all about trying to create or change what's inside the endosperm into these some water soluble starches. So when uh, the brewer comes in later, adds uh, their own water to it, everything will come out nice and easily. Enzymes will be preserved to the degree that they want to, so it can work on the starches um, and create um, the sugars that we want at the end of the day. So once the, the plant starts growing, one of the things that, that starts getting created are these enzymes that start breaking the, uh, the hard starch down into uh, uh, you know, carbohydrates and, and ultimately into sugars. Um, and uh, the uh, most important uh, for the malting process are the uh, debranching enzymes, which are breaking off you know, one to six sugar molecule uh, chunks, uh, and beta amylase, which is producing maltose um, by uh, breaking off... Uh, it says one to four, but doesn't beta do you know, two? Kind of, yeah. 
uh, basically creating two chain sugars. Well, uh, yeah. The sorry, so on a on a hexa or on a on a what you call it, a sugar or a, sorry, what are those called? Sixties. <laughs> on uh, any kind of a sugarish or starches model, you got basically a six-sided um, uh, pro or molecules molecular structure. So the one to six are the ones that kind of go one side to the other, and those are the ones that are the easy ones to kind of knock off, but they come out and just only at the ends that they're available. Um, then occasionally you'll have structures that drop down, and that's going to be on the one to six links. Sorry. Um, and those are going to be ones that you want to knock off with the alpha amylase. Um, and I'm pretty sure the, you're right that the alpha amylases can knock off the... Um, right, they're doing the one to four. Uh, but if you can't knock it. off the one to sixes, you can never get down to a right. very simple sugar that can be processed by And it. when we talk about mashing, we're going to be talking about beta amylase uh, again. So they're utilizing the beta amylase uh, in the malting process, and then the brewer is finishing up uh, the, the, the ultimate conversion. Mm -hmm. um, and so then you also have some other enzymes working in there too, uh, the hemicellulases, which are going to break down the cellular structure in there, the beta-glucanases. So you've got these other kind of um, ones that are helping break down the, the inside of the endosperm. Yeah, yeah, reducing some of the, uh, the, the heavier uh, goo. Mm -hmm. um, and so like we talked about, the, the modification you know, is 0 to 100%. Um, and it's the, uh, the, the length that the acrospire has grown relative to the length of the, uh, the, the, the kernel of barley. 100% um, uh, uh, is fully modified, it's low in protein content, and uh, almost all converted to water-soluble gum. So, but on that note, if you haven't gotten a lot of the protein content converted, you're going to end up with a highly will be proteaceous kind of material, um, yield will go down. And that gets into one of the things that we'll get into when you talk about mashing, which is the potential need to do a protein rest, which can help continue that process of breaking down um, the, the proteins into something that releases uh, more stuff, uh, more good materials into the, the wort. Um, so the brewing malts are generally in the 50 to 75 percent range, um, depending on the, uh, the maltster, the crop, um, what they're looking to get out of it. Um, you know, it's uh, got greater nitrogen complexity, which I think you definitely, definitely want, right? We used to love that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they talk about a protein rest at 122 degrees Fahrenheit to uh, uh, degrade the albuminous proteins and the fractions that can be uh, used to reduce growth and give good head retention. Um, and we'll talk about the molecule size in the, uh, in the mashing uh, phase. Okay. So the basic, and we're going to go through the most basic kind of view of the malting process. They get a whole crap ton of malt into the, these, these large kind of vats, and they let them steep uh, for, for a couple days, a little longer, to, to start working and creating that condition. It's done at like a room temperature. You think of like, what's nature going to be like? It's going to be down in the 50s, 60s for most of the growing conditions where we think Wisconsin, maybe you think Washington, you think... Um, Germany. And it Britain. takes time yeah. for the, the, the kernel to rehydrate to yeah. completely. Yeah. So it starts realizing, hey, I got a chance of uh, having a good life here. You pump some oxygen in there, it starts working with that control growth. The germination period happens for uh, basically for another kind of week or so after that. Um, and this is where things start to get, um, uh, the, the acrospires start to get longer. And this is also potentially where roots may want to start coming out and trying to figure out what to do. And that's one of those, they don't want to get roots growing all together because it just makes this really incredibly tight bed and it's impossible to work with after that. So they really have to do a good job of controlling this, this process. Um, so then they go through this process after it's really starting to germinate once it's hit this desired level of starting to raise up the temperature to kind of shut down the process. 
um, and then basically put it back into a dormant-ish state. Okay. Um, and then this is at that point. This is that those initial steps are common for just about every malt out there. Okay. Um, and then as we're trying to make a specific malt, how we dry and kiln them are going to affect what we end up in terms of a malt product that's going to be interesting to a brew. Yeah, and there are vast numbers of flavor that flavors that can be created during the malting process. So if we go to the next page about uh, malt and kilning, um, so we, we have a few basic core types of malt over here. You've got some just um, British and uh, basic basic um, base malt, okay? And for those, you're just going to be this have this kind of slow process of raising the temperature up, and to, depending on how hot you go, you're going to get maybe a little more toasty character versus a, uh, a lighter bready character. Um, looking at like a Czech Pilsner, we're really, really trying to, to kind of preserve a nice um, profile, keep a nice kind of simple malt air, air, uh, profile in there. Um, there's just different slow regimes kind of for each major fla flavor profile that you that you have out there. You don't need to, you won't need to memorize the specifics of, all right, this regime goes up to this number. Um, but these, the, for the base malts that you have in there, they've just got different characters just to try to bring out the maximum in terms of a specific flavor. Have we really talked about the, the, does everybody sort of understand what a base malt is versus a specialty no, malt? We haven't talked about that. It's uh, like bread compared to toast, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, but basically I mean, the base malt is going to be the majority of the grist going in. It's producing the fermentable sugars, mm -hmm. whereas the specialty malts, uh, uh, especially some of the more intense ones, you're using very small amounts to, to give that that toasted you know flavor or some sugar colors. Uh, yeah. colors you know the coffee roast notes that we get in some some beers so you know basically every beer starts out at you know maybe 70 to 90 percent base malt or even 100 percent base malt if if the malt is you know something specific like a german pilsner and it's what's needed to support the rest of the flavor profile but then um, the rest and then the, the specialty yeah. so things uh, you know uh, vienna Blue color Munich, um, uh, pale Pilsner, um, uh, wheat or malted wheat mm -hmm. um, can be used as a base malt as well. You know those are going to be yeah. used in the biggest quantities, mm -hmm. and that isn't to say you can't mix and match. But you know that that's where the bulk of the the sugar that will be converted to alcohol yeah. is is coming from. Because yeah. as we go through the kilning process, because uh, you need those malts to have enough enzymes to be able to convert themselves um, and or basically convert all their starches into sugars. Um, but because you're adding so much of them, you don't want them to also be a dominating character. And as you go through these temperature profiles, you kill off certain percentages of the enzymes which affects your overall enzyme content. Um, so you don't want to totally devastate that. But yeah, it, it boils down to kind of a canvas versus paint. Um, a lot of the base malts are there for just providing that underlying kind of canvas, and then the rest is going to be there for kind of tailoring a, a sub-style or unique style. Right, and that's, you know, the stuff that we, with the 80 some odd styles we'll taste in this class are, are you know, a lot of the differences is in the, in the malt mm -hmm. profile. Um, so one of the reasons they, they raise the temperature slowly is that while the enzymes are uh, suspended in solution, they're more vulnerable um, to that uh, that water volatilizing off its, you know, yeah, as steam. They're more vulnerable to be denatured as... Um, so, you know, the slower you can do it, the, the more enzy enzymatic content you're keeping within that that the brewer can then manipulate in the mash tun. Mm -hmm. um, so. so then as we move into this, uh, the, the rest of this list, we're getting some more of the specialty malts. Um, so you have your crystals. Uh, the unique part about their process is they're basically 
in this process held brought up to mashing temperatures, which we'll cover in just a bit, um, and held there, a, a small amount of it converts, so they start to get sugar within themselves, um, and then they're brought up to higher temperatures, and it's basically garmalized um, at that point, um, and, or crystallized, um, and it's preserved within them. So all the, their enzymes end up getting killed, but they already have these intrin intrinsic kind of sugary characters to it, and depending on what temperature you went up to, um, the interesting kind of sugary Maillard, I guess, products that you get out of that. And that's, you know, described a lot by color. So crystal 10 is 10 lava bond, crystal 120 is 120 lava bond, which like is a measure of color. Yeah. So it's, you know, basically you're taking, you know, sugar on, like you're making sugar candy on a stove. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the hotter you get it uh, and the longer it goes, the, the darker, you know, so you'll see the as you move, move from to 20 to, to treacle, 120 to molasses to you, you yeah. see that progression as well. That's yeah. that's you know very similar to the uh, the, the candy making process. Mm -hmm. um, chocolate and black patent um, and a few other kind of a toasty dish ones. They're just basically dried out to a point where once again they're they're not uh, still wet, I guess, and then taken up to very very high temperatures and almost basically burnt to some extent. Um, to get some more of these roasted, chocolatey kind of notes out of them. Um, and then occasionally you can actually just take some of the base malts and you can just smoke them as well. Um, and one of the, the classic ones that's used is uh, the rock beer that we had two weeks ago, I guess, where you used the, the, the Bamberg um, or killing over Beechwood fires, basically. Um, so lots of ways you can go. It's one of those fun things to always go to your homebrew stores and just take tastes uh, of the different ones out there. Um, so after going through this process, there's going to be different values of all of these different things in the malt content. So you're going to end up with different levels of sugars, different levels of starches. Your enzymes are going to be affected by the process it goes through. The, the major ones that we talked about earlier, the diastatic, the ones that break up our starches, um, the alpha amylase and the beta amylase, and the proteolytic, the ones that are going to break down certain other proteins. Um, and, and the ones that affect overall how the starch is deep branch. Um, you're going to end up with a certain protein content, um, and then a bunch of other kind of smaller uh, things that are just kind of part of plants in general. you got your tannins, polyphenols, your overall cellulose, and you don't want to extract necessarily as much of those from uh, your malt, so that, that's something that's affected by this overall process and how you handle the malt afterwards. Um, and then a bunch of other compounds as well, nitrogen, um, Okay, so any general questions about malting? There's first four, whether it's talking about the temperature, whether it's just the bridge fail, check fail, none of those talk about time at all. I mean, do they actually just get to that temperature and stop? No, um, you know, I have a great book that describes how long they hold some of these um, different temperatures as well. But, yeah, it, but you're totally right. It's, it's one I mean, of those. It's going to come down to the water content. Yeah. Um, you know, and they will measure the water content so that you know it's it's a, an agricultural product. It's going to vary from uh, from batch to batch. Um, so and the humidity in the air and, and whatnot. So that's going to be the key. There's going to be you know they're going to know it's going to be between two hours and three hours. Maybe they need to hone in and, and it needs to be this batch is two hours thirty five minutes to get the moisture content and, and the, the the color um, so they have a consistent product. Yeah. Let me see if I can dig up some malting regimes. So in general, it is an hour or two hours or something on like that. It scale. could be even long. I, I honestly, I don't have the. Yeah. <laughs> He's pulling numbers out. Yeah. I was <laughs> <just> <laughs> um, and then, uh, 
then it needs to rest once it's uh, been kilned, and mm-hmm. it needs to sit for a month or so to off-gas some of the uh, Bottle, yeah. some things that you don't necessarily want uh, uh, hanging about in your, uh, in your beer. Mm-hmm. And after that, they want to make sure that they keep it at a low moisture content so that, well, A, that you're getting the right amount of, I guess, extract per pound uh, so that the brewers can know what they're getting. If you've got... I mean, and they're aiming for the three to six, just I think range for three to five-ish percent range for water content. But if you get a malt's got like nine percent in it, that dramatically affects your overall weight, which means you're going to get less yield. So it's brewers really need to have a nice stable process. So a lot of the maltsters will say, "Here's the chemical analysis for this," and um, obviously keeping it in a good um, dry storage environment is important. Okay, then the other. Um, the other side of the, the kind of malting process is the un, unmalting uh, pro, um, ingredients. Um, these are basically going to be anything that's not uh, uh, a cereal grain that's been malted. So you can have rice, corn, um, they got barley, wheat, as you mentioned before. Um, those can be malted too. Um, rye. Uh, basically, you have to take them through some sort of a process to get them in a condition where they you can. So they're degrade. still in the in the form of the hard, hard seeds, usually seed condition and. You know, because they're not being malted, you're not having that initial conversion from that, that hard. So you need to, to apply some sort of an external mm-hmm. um, force to it. Uh, so getting it up to a point where they're, they're in, or their starches gelatinize and open up. Um, so there's a, a few different processes you could do that. Basically, you're making a large part of it. You're either making a porridge or you're putting it through this kind of really, really hot roller and flash kind of gelatinizing and stuff in it. Um, then you got torrefied, which is once again kind of bringing it up to a high temp to kind of pop it up. So those, those um, and you, so you usually buy them in that kind of uh, gelatinous form, or you need to take the extra step to uh, to go that right. And then you've got some other kind of simple sugar routes um, like honeys and other direct sugars taken through different levels of kind of cooking as well. Um, and anything else they have through fruit, vegetables as well, you can throw in there too for other adjuncts, kind of fermentables. Um, anything that has a, a, a type of sugar that can dissolve in water and basically um, be fermented. So, Okay, any questions on and then, sorry, we get into the last part which is just a, a quick example of a, a bunch of different kind of malts out there and where they're, they're typically so we start off with the uh, the first uh, well, first four are just kind of standard base malts, nice light, um, high, relatively high um, uh, enzyme content so they can convert themselves. Um, the dextrin or carapil is a light malt, but it's uh, it's typically not going to actually be providing any major fermentables so much as just right. It's been treated in a way that, uh, that it, it's created uh, sugars that, that cannot be eaten by the uh, yeast, <coughs> um, so then body so they're sugars that don't taste sweet to us. We call them dextrins. Yeah, um, yeah basically yeast cake um, Wheat malt, um, so you'll see those kind of in your hefts, in your wit beers, but once again, it's a, a, a nice fermentable. Um, but it's, because it doesn't have a husk, it becomes uh, an issue for the mashing process. We'll talk about that, I think, in the next little section. And then we start to get into some of the um, darker uh, base malts. So you're going into pale malt. We're getting a little extra color in there. Good for your uh, a lot of your pale ales and your bitters, and also base for your stouts and porters, with uh, the addition of some other specialty malts. 
you got Vienna, um, you've got a uh, different spectrum of the Munich lagers, and you can see in terms of the color here, we're getting up into the, the low 20s um, at, at this point. And then you start to get into the ones that you've done some interesting kind of toast aspects to, some of your biscuits. You're not taking it to a very, very dark place, but it's going to pick up some really nice bready characters to it. The crystals, which will add uh, those sugary characters, dark chocolate, or the chocolates will start to get into the roast and the chocolate kind of characters. Um, and then basically starting to move into the very, very highly roasted uh, malts, uh, which are good for your porters and stouts. So these are the, the kind of styles. Basically, you'll look to kind of see those in. You'll see some of these in small percentages and across different beers as well. Um, but uh, just, I guess, when we, before we get to the, when we get to the recipe building up section, these will be the starting points that we work from. Okay, so any other questions on malt, malting? All right, now we'll move through the mash and mashing uh, or en enzyme section. Okay, um, four questions for this one. We're basically talking about the different kind of enzymes, which well, we already started to talk about a little bit, how they're important in the, the brewing process and how they affect your overall beer. And then let's talk about mashing overall, talk about different ways you can mash this and good and bad things about it. But we'll just walk through the overall process. What is mashing? Uh, well, mashing is completing the, the job of converting that, uh, that barley kernel into sugar and other flavor compounds or other compounds that, uh, that ultimately create, uh, create our beer. Um, you know, there are, we're going to use some of the same enzymes we used before, but we're also going to take advantage of some other enzymes that, uh, that act at different temperature ranges, um, depending on, and depending on what beer you're brewing with what ingredients you may or may not want to, to take the, uh, uh, take the time to do it. Um, and basically the mash is, uh, after the grain has been grilled, uh, Milled, um, you know, so that the husk is separated out from the uh, the endosperm. Um, endosperm is uh, is broken into you know a powder, you know, with some chunks. Uh, uh, it's mixing it with water uh, and bringing it to a certain temperature um, and holding it at that temperature so the enzymes can take action uh, when they find their target and, and perform their their magic. Whether it's you know reducing uh, starter. Uh, you know, carbohydrates to simpler sugars for the yeast, whether it's reducing protein size down to where it's good for the yeast and good for head retention and into the right size uh, molecules. Um, uh, there's... Uh, uh, well, and, and this gets into the... the uh, so malt obviously has a whole bunch of these enzymes in it. And enzymes are these wonderful little players that basically take a condition and say and say, okay, this has got this extra little bonding site over here, this has got this bonding site. If I'm at a proper energy level, I can create and twist these two things around and create a, a certain reaction that may not have happened otherwise on its own, and I don't, the enzyme itself is not actually an end part of that reaction, it still ends up there at the end of the day. Um, and it's not one of the, it doesn't change necessarily, it doesn't add itself to the products, it just manipulates them into a way that, um, depending on the temperature and, the, and what's going on around it. Um, the, it's highly, highly a function of energy, which is typically going to be a thermal energy kind of situation. Um, they're technically active at, at very low levels as well, but they're, they get more and more active in a certain band for every different kind of enzyme out there. 
And when you start to go over that enzyme or that, that temperature, they start to hit this point where they become denatured and they themselves kind of break and form a new different shape or new shape and become ineffectual at performing the enzyme job. Um, and at that point, they're technically called denatured. Um, so it's our, our goal is to work our way through different temperature profiles to help the enzymes maximize their activity to accomplish a net goal and then move it to a next phase so we can move it to a stable area. So kill those enzymes once we have that nice thing or denature them and then continue the rest of the brewing process. So we have a stable process or a stable end product as well. Um, and, and we accomplish all of the chemical manipulations that we need to to end up with an efficient uh, wort production. Um, so with that, we're going to start our, all of our way from room temperature and adding water to, add to a, a ground uh, 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 grist. Um, so we're going to start with, uh, and potentially start with an acid rest. And all these steps aren't necessary for every, um, every beer and every set, set of malts out there. Um, but we're just we're going to work our way up. So um, we're initially we're going to talk a little about pale lager malts. Um, sometimes when basically as we get to a darker roast malt, we end up with more uh, acidic processes or acidic kind of byproducts, um, which helps get our pHs into certain ranges. Um, the enzymes like pH ranges as well. Um, so we want to make sure that we keep keep everything moving in a nice pH range. It also ends up with an overall correct pH range for the beer. Um, so with these pale lager malts, we typically may not be getting into um, the range that we need to, depending on um, how everything worked out with them. So I'll, there, you can do an, uh, an acid rest, which is in the range of 90 to 120 degrees, and this is typically for I don't know, 15 to 20, 30 minutes or something like that, um, where basically we help release phytase, I think it is. Um, yeah, phytase is the enzyme. Yeah, that phytase is the enzyme. It works on the, uh, or to create phytic acid. It works on phyton in particular, so I'm reading this now. Um, so, um, and then we basically, well, I guess there's also in this range, we can all, well, and moving up to the kind of the 120s, we can also start to get to some of the, um, the, the beta-glucanases, which helps bring, break down some stuff in the, in the walls as well. Um, so when you've got some particularly gummy malts, in particular like rye, um, this, this early kind of low rest can help out with those kind of beers. Okay. Um, then we move into the protein rest. Remember, once again, enzymes are on a continuum. There, there's no perfect temperature for everything to happen at, and as a function of time and uh, temperature, these reactions will happen faster or slower. Um, so, uh, protein rest for the, getting in those cases where we need to provide some extra protein breakdown. Maybe we're dealing with a little bit of an undermodified malt, and we haven't quite gotten it, like we talked about earlier. If we keep it in the roughly right here, right the 113 to 127 range, which I'm sure is something like 45 to 50 uh, Celsius or something, um, you start to have these proteinases um, that break down uh, your, your different, old, your longer chain proteins into smaller ones, uh, and this can be used to kind of adjust mouthfeel because proteins have a very, very, very strong effect on your your mouthfeel production uh, or your mouthfeel. Um, because like they're looking, you're looking at here like molecular weights of 17,000 uh, to 15 or 115, 150,000. like water is down in the teens or or so. Um, so these are big, big, big uh, kind of uh, feeling molecules, and trying to get them down to appropriate settling um, for the beer that you're trying to produce. And depending on how um, your model is modified, you're gonna go to the, the big one. Of the starch conversion? Yes. <laughs> uh, so uh, the protein rest, 
a lot of times isn't done because of the uh, modification level of the malts uh, that uh, brewers have access to today. Um, the starch conversion is always going to happen. This is this is the big one, um, and basically you're taking the, uh, the the starches and turning them into sugars uh, that can be eaten um, by the yeast. I'm sorry, I should say the yeast. Um, and there are two primary. There's beta amylase and alpha amylase, uh, and they work in different ways. Um, and they have a slight they have an overlapping temperature range, but generally sort of below 150 beta amylase is most active above 150 alpha amylase is, is more active um, you know when you're starting to get the uh, the uh, uh, disintegration of the, the beta amylase uh, so your mash temperature depending on where you are on that spectrum a lower uh, is going to end up with a more fermentable wort um, because the beta amylase uh, works by breaking into uh, uh, two chain sugars um, you know uh, maltose uh, primarily um, and that is, the yeast can eat that up all day. Uh, the uh, alpha amylase breaks them randomly into one to four chain sugars. Um, the yeast can eat one chain sugar, can eat two chain sugar. Lager yeast can process some three chain sugars, but four chain sugars the, isn't eaten at all. And that those remain as body because they're dextrins. So it's, you know, big sugars that we don't perceive as sweet. Um, but linger in the thing. So if the amylase is doing it randomly, the, the beta is just going two, 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 yeah. whereas the uh, alpha is going one, two, one, four, yeah. three, two. So yeah, if you, if you, once again, long chain sugars, basically once you get them into a, a point, and this is where we're, where we're moving to these upper temperatures to kind of hit that gel out nice, we're basically unraveling the starch into a nice long strand that can be attacked and Usually they can go in a straight line, and when we have those one, uh, one six chains, they go they can go down and have another chain kind of below that. Um, and that's the the alpha amylases can cut those as well as these, whereas the beta amylases can only just work from the ends, basically working in. Um, and so if if we're going to actually get a sugar that we can process, it needs to be pretty much at one or two in order for yeast to be happy with it. Otherwise, if it's got those extra little pieces in there. Um, Yeast are never going to do anything with it. It's going to end up with a big residual piece of starch kind of left in your beer. Gives you a haze, gives you a bunch of other things. So we use a combination of kind of the, the rapid action um, alpha amylase cutting all over the place with the, the, the beta to provide a nice kind of balance in terms of getting an efficient job of tailoring your mouthfeel and also um, accomplishing the conversion as you need to. Yeah. Uh, and actually, sorry. 155 favors the alpha amylase, um, you know, but they're active across, like Mark said, it's sort of a bell curve of, Activity, you know, yeah. and those bell curves overlap. Yeah. So, you know, the higher you go, you get to 155, you really set the alpha amylase loose um, far more than the beta amylase. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, mass temperatures, I think 148 to 152 are sort of the typical... Yeah. You know, American IPA pale ale. I don't want it to end up too malty and sweet, but still get a fast, efficient conversion. Right. Um, and then uh, you know they, they get denatured as the temperature rises, uh, which we'll talk about in two slides. Um, so, like we talked about the the different. Uh, uh, so the monosaccharides are glucose, fructose, mannose, and galactose. Uh, disaccharides have the two uh, two chains. Um, and that's maltose, isomaltose, sucrose, melibios, and lactose. Uh, and all of those can be eaten by the, uh, uh, the yeast to produce alcohol and CO2. 
uh, in addition to some small flavor contributions. Uh, the trisaccharides uh, include maltotriose, um, and again, that's, that's only some lager yeast strains can uh, eat, yeah. process, <laughs> um, you know, so generally speaking, you know, with an ale yeast, you aren't going to get get any conversion of those. Uh, and then the uh, four or more, the oligosaccharides. Uh, That's basically something that you're not, nothing, or yeast are going to just walk past, because they can walk. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's going to be left in there in terms of your finished product in the beer, typically. Yeah, so it's going to come across in the body as a viscosity uh, element. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so yeah, basically what goes into the beer affects or the, where you're going to end up with, what kind of uh, modification and what kind of uh, starches it, it had to start out with. And then what you do to it is going to, uh, with the fermentation, re- or sorry, the uh, mashing regime is going to affect how much um, you end up with in terms of end sugars. So as we're going through this process, I mean, if you could hold it there forever, technically speaking, everything will be broken down to depending on how long your enzyme, and stuff will get broken down as a function of how long your protein, or sorry, your enzymes last within uh, the, the heat temperature, because over time they will break down. Okay. Yeah. Well, and there's also a finite amount of enzy- yes. enzyme, which is why we talk about the, uh, the, the six-row malt having additional diastatic power. Basically, it means it is so loaded with enzymes that it can convert all of itself and some friend, uh, friend like corn or rice uh, as well um, to, uh, to to create the, the wort. So, um, I think, it, is that technically called? No, the Colbashian index is the multiplication, right? Probably so. Um, what's the index? Uh, degrees... Uh, Littner? Littner, okay. Yeah. So they, when they get their measurements on their malt, they'll measure the, the different kind of characters of those. Um, so then once you've hit, once you've gotten enough or all, or you've gotten it down to the profile you want, depending on what fermentability you're looking for, um, you want to move into the phase called mashing out, which is where you're going to raise the temperature somehow to start denaturing the rest of the enzyme so it holds everything at where you basically got it right. Yeah, you're basically freezing the uh, the, the the composition in terms of sugars and, and words, um, you know. And ideally, you'd love to take it up to boiling because uh, yeah. that's going to degrade every enzyme in there. But like we Why discussed stop there, <laughs> um, uh, like we discussed last week, there, there's a point where the, uh, the the husk material that's part of the uh, the mash will start to leach out tannins and, and unpleasant. Like we had the husky aftertaste or the husky off flavor last week. Um, and 168, 170 degrees is sort of the the, the cap, kind of the sweet spot before yeah, the, it gets the, into yeah. So you're at that point you're managing you're you're denaturing a, a significant part of both the alpha amylase and the beta amylase. Um, you're also basically think of syrup as you warm it up it becomes uh, uh, less viscous and easier to drain off. So you're getting into a nice little point where the sugars can rinse off nice and easily, um, and then kind of not going into a regime or a temperature regime where you may create those. Uh, yeah, that's, that's the sweet spot where you're not risking the yeah. extraction of the, the, the tannic compounds, yeah. but you're maximizing the, uh, the, the viscosity of the, the syrup. Okay. And so we're going to kind of end up wrap, wrapping this up with the general procedures that you can follow uh, for mashing. So starting from the beginning, you're, you're going to be adding over this whole process. Uh, I'll cover it. 
Okay. Um, around one liter per pound, or one to two liters per pound of grain, and depending on what kind of viscosity affects, or how much water you add, can affect some aspects of the um, the mashing process and how quickly enzymes get broken down. It's one of those. If you have it too dilute, it takes a while for uh, enzymes it, it, to the find. The enzymes can't find what they want to act on. Yeah. And, uh, and if it's too dense, it makes it difficult for the enzymes to get around. Move around, some, yeah. uh, To some extent. Um, so the there's a I think we've got four major kind of mashing processes. So the simplest is you pick one temperature that you kind of want to hit. Uh, it's a single step infusion. And you add the right amount of water to the at the right temperature to the malt, and account for the temperature of the malt and the temperature of the water, and you end up with hitting a specific temperature and just kind of holding it close to that temperature over the course of the um, the, the mashing process. This tends to work out for malts that are well modified, don't need an acid rest or anything like that, and you just need to go hit that um, that sacrification um, rest. So. Um, good, well modified. A lot of British British beers kind of really started pushing this uh, the, the farthest to get started. Um, it's easy. You don't need a ton of equipment. Uh, it doesn't take very long. Um, but the problem is you can't use an underfied malt um, for that, or you can't use adjuncts for that. Um, the second is a step infusion mash, uh, where you work your way through um, the different mash processes. Sorry, you can use an adjunct as long as it's been converted by, by being torrefied or or already in a sugary form. Yeah, gelatinized in some way. Yeah. Um, the okay, so the second one is actually using either water or uh, a heat source to increase your temperature throughout it, and this is called the step infusion mash. So you, you infuse it again. And then start uh, adding temperature or water. Um, what's going Adding really, really hot water to bring up the temperature um, and starting off a little thicker. Um, the nice thing is you can hit a few extra of the different steps as you need to. Um, but uh, you can use some under modified malt. But it takes a little more effort, calculation, mixing during the process. Um, yeah, and you also get the calculating the water volumes can be a bit tricky because you don't want to end up with the sacrifice. Sacrification. Yes, thank you. Uh, rest to be either too dilute. Well, that would be what would happen. You'd end up with a too dilute because you've added all this water to bring the and temperature of the, the mash bed up. Mm -hmm. um, and then the big complicated, <laughs> great one is, is decoction. And who has actually done the decoction mash? Okay, just one. Yeah, it's you do it once, um, <laughs> and then you don't try to do it again. Sorry, and then you use melanoid malt after that. Um, so decoction mash is interesting because um, you're going to be taking part of the mash itself and then heating that up and then putting it back in and to, in order to bring up the temperature. Um, so you you mash in at, at a beginning low temperature. Um, you take a very, very thick part of it um, out, and then you go put that into a second pot, and you heat that up. Um, and the interesting thing is you, you can take, you bring it up to like a mashing temperature. You let it mash at about 150 or so, or 150, 160. Um, separation, then bring that up, to, and then put that back in. So technically, you've got kind of a converted malt in there, so going back in. But a bunch of its enzymes have already been killed, but fortunately, it already kind of took care of itself. But now that goes back in. And it warms up the rest of it, and then it brings up the overall temperature. So now you can hit a different temperature, and depending on where you want to go, you may do that one or two more times. Um, 
You don't you, you do bring it up to boiling on this, um, but because it's so thick and the pH is low, you don't worry about that tannin extraction that you might worry about when you're um, sparging uh, later and then raising up the, the where the pH gets a little higher, um, more alkaline, and then the the temperature starts to allow that tannin extraction. So it the the tannin extraction is not a problem with raising the temperature up so high, um, but it really kind of blows up the beers. It and it creates these inter interesting caramelized and melanoidy kind of characters, uh, which are very, very deep, bready um, notes. Um, changes the malt aroma, and so it's very, very, very intensive. It's, it takes a lot, a bunch of extra equipment. Um, but when you we, when you look at some of those great German malty um, beers, they typically use um, this kind of process. You can deal with an undermodified malt very, very well with this, um, and typically it's best to go in with an undermodified malt with this and not go in with a, a highly modified malt because you're going to work your way through this process and get it. Um, so it's a very interesting and labor-intensive process. It's worth going through one time and then using melanoid malt after that. Just one question about the decoction. Uh, uh, do you boil basically this small amount? For the decoction, yes. Yes. You bring it up for, I, I can't remember, it's like 5 or 15, 10 or 15 minutes or something like that. For but very, very small. then you kill all the enzymes. Yeah, the enzymes are dead. But since it's already kind of converted itself, it's at least taking care of a large part of its own job. So when it goes back into the, the rest of the wort, and since you're taking a thick part, well, hopefully most of this, the enzymes have already let, let themselves into the, the water as it is, you're not degrading the um, overall enzymatic capability of the net wort to ferment what's in it still. So it ends up balancing out. Because you put it back, then you do a second decoction, mm -hmm. then a third one, so basically remaining no enzyme at the end. Well, you're taking that, once again, the dense part again, and so you, and you, the part that's going in may or may not have already been converted, too. So as, as we're working through this, you added in some already converted and already kind of enzyme open thing. So you're, you're not killing a ton of it. And you're not taking the same third, either. So it's yeah, a sampling in each, too. Yeah, right. so technically speaking, if you take the same third, you're only getting one-ninth of it out the second time, or at the same time. Um, it works. Oh, sure. No, <laughs> Germans no, figured it out. I don't know how they figured it out before they had thermometers, but they figured it out amazingly. Um, so the, the, it's it's an interesting process. Um, it's it's fun to walk through it, and it does end up with a great flavor kind of profile. A few years back, we did a, a, a clinic on decoction where we did a just a single infusion. We all, all the same recipe. We did a single infusion. We did I think a double decoction on one, and then we did a um, Single, uh, no, sorry, a single infusion with melanoid malt added to it instead, um, and we took it and gave it to a whole bunch of people blind. People tended to prefer the decoction, but just slightly more, just like fifty-five percent to forty-five percent over the melanoid. Um, but then people like did not like the <laughs> the, the single infusion without the well, it just didn't have the flavor profile at all. Um, what is melanoid? It's basically. Malt that has almost, I mean, kind of gone through a little stewing and a little bit of a roasting profile. Let me, I want to get some more malting information for, for next class. Um, but it's loaded up basically by virtue of this with an extra, a whole bunch of those extra melanoid um, kind of characters to it. So it just kind of, it's almost like a crystal malt also to some extent. You just put it in and it kind of dissolves. Uh, I think most of the enzymes are probably, might, might have a small amount of enzymatic power. But um, you bring in some of that. It's a, Great tasting malt for, um, but it's one of those you need to add it and because it, add, it can add a bunch of mouthfeel to it. Cause it's a little so somehow it's without getting too roasty. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
So yeah, let me try to look into the, the malting regime is for that, and then some of the other malts as well. Okay, the, the final malting process that we'll cover is a double uh, double mash, and this is uh, basically where you are trying to do. It's kind of a combination of infusion and decoction. You you do uh, a your main mash uh, kind of at a lower temperature with your your malt in particular. Um, at the same time, you are maybe wanting to add an adjunct to this, so you do another mash of those other adjuncts and try to get them to that uh, gelatinized phase. So you may be like boiling rice or something like that. Um, you let that get boiling for a bit. You hit your certain t lower temperature with your, your main mash. Then you add that rice or corn or whatever it is into the mix. It raises the temperature up. Um, and then the enzymes within your main mash work on the starches that were created from that adjunct, uh, the double mash that you're added in, and then it kind of works the rest of its um, infusion steps as prop after that. Um, that's a way that you can basically bring in some um, extra adjuncts, um, have them make sure that they're already ready and gelatinized, and kind of do a step mash with that. Um, it's Typically, if you're going to do a gelatinization, you need to start out at a lower temperature to, to account for that coming in. Otherwise, you have to let that all cool down. Right? It takes a whole bunch of extra time. Um, one of those things that we did when we came to America and we wanted to have beers that had less and less uh, malt flavor to them and more and more adjuncts, this is one of the kind of processes that we worked through with that. So it's a technique for accounting for um, having a lot of extra adjuncts. Okay, so any questions, more questions on mashing? Yeah, on the... For testing purposes, kind of idea. Uh -huh. How far down do we need to memorize things like this? Uh, you know, mannose is a monosaccharide. Oh no, 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 don't worry. I think, like uh, on the exam, I would guess that they're going to ask you what kind of temperature range, or and if you're probably like, if, as long as you say it's probably around 120, and just kind of work from there, you'll you'll probably be good enough. They're not going to get into asking you um, what's the molecular weight of a of, of a, a protein chain. Um, they may just they may ask you uh, what do proteinases act on, and that's the nice thing about most enzyme is the first half the word is what they work on. Um, so proteinases work on proteins. Okay, great. All right. Um, so phytase works on phytic acid works on phytase. Phytase works on phytin. Um, so yeah, don't don't worry about needing those that level of detail for. Actually, even to the written exam, for that matter. Um, let's see. So that one of the areas that really doesn't get maybe covered very well within the, the content material they have is and as Peter's getting ready. So after you've gotten to those temperatures, then you have to sparge. Okay, and sparging is the process of rinsing the grains, and so typically it's done. You start draining out some of the fluid and spraying more um, uh, water on top. Uh, that's kind of called fly sparging, and basically it slowly, slowly works a gradient and pushes or the, the sugars enter the solution, drain out. Um, this is where we're getting into the, the bed of the mash. The mash itself forms a little bed that rinses itself all the way through and holds itself up. Um, the other major technique that homebrewers may use is batch sparging, which is where they just drain off everything and then add some more hot water, mix it around for a bit, let it settle, drain off a little more, recirculate it, and then drain that all off again. Um, technically a little less efficient, um, but still gets a pretty decent efficiency out of it as well. And then at that point, it runs all off the kettle and begins processes that we'll talk about later. Are the four in here, are these the only four recognized that you can do for the test? They, they, for the one question of... Right. The, yeah, these are, these are the four that they're going to ask about. So you have to do the, one of those. 
two of those four. Um, if the, so, let's see. Like, no, you have to be, you, so you have to pick three of them. Uh, if you if you once you did take the written, it has to describe three different mashing techniques, and um, yeah, and just once again discuss the pros and cons. But it needs to be one of those okay. four. Yeah. Um, okay. So Pete, what do we have today? Oh, we've got sweet, <laughs> and I think this is gonna be super sweet. So let's see. So if we want to grab our study guide and kind of go to the back of um, the different faults. Right. So I don't even know if they, well, okay, so we've got sweet. So it's on the very last page on the back page. Um, so um, as we go through our malting process and then as we we're going to affect how many, what kind of sugars are in the beer and what kind of um, uh, dextrins and uh, starches and all those kind of things are in there. Um, and then as we, depending on what kind of a mixture of sugars that we had and then how we ferment it, we're going to affect how much of that gets fermented and then how much is left in a uh, residual kind of sweetness um, within the beer. So um, I guess on that note, so you got the calibration beer and one with a whole bunch of sugar added to it. Yes, a random amount of sugar poured from the uh, from the ten pound bag. So I'm gonna pass around uh, cyanide sheets as well. So apart from the chronic sweetness, <laughs> um, the the take it or, or sip of the the untainted beer. Very dry, obviously. Very light mouthfeel. I mean, you pick up the sugary one, and it's heavy. It coats your whole tongue. Is anybody getting the sweetness? Anyone? No. No. Um, so it's not just the flavor profile. It's also the perception of it. It changes the mouthfeel around, depending on how much extra sugar you have in there. Um, it it kind of coats. Um, how, <laughs> uh, it's also going to change your perception of the bread. And, oh, go ahead. Well, I was, was oh, talking about like yeah. fruits and mm-hmm. uh, you know because it's it's going to be more reminiscent of something that's that's sweet. So you're going to pick up the uh, the I think you get the esters a bit more, but they're in more of a candy. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it was in a uh, non Coors Light beer, yeah. Um, another kind of aspect of sweetness. Sweetness will offset bitterness. Um, significantly, okay, they, they're kind of diametrically uh, or opposed to, to each other to some extent. Well, one might even say we add the bitterness to offset the sweetness yeah. of beer generally. So why this may not be the best beer to do a comparison to bitterness on, um, uh, you, can, you can at least perceive bitterness on on the on the, on the one that have, doesn't have a ton of sugar in it. Um, so. Um, with the, 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 the kind of sweet notes, once again, the core drivers of that are going to be what you did, what kind of malt you used uh, in terms of ingredients, what kind of specialty malts, what adjuncts you put in, how you treated it during its mashing regime, okay? Or, uh, and then what you fermented it with and how much time and how much or the temperatures to make sure that... <laughs> how healthy that yeast was uh, mm-hmm. going in. Um, and and it's, it's important to differentiate sweetness from like maltiness because you can have a rich malty beer... 
that is not under attenuated, yeah. like the, some of the German stuff that we had uh, two weeks ago, like the Dunkel. That, um, yeah. Uh, you know, the, the, the richer, maltier lagers were still well attenuated. Mm -hmm. um, it didn't make you feel diabetes. Yeah, and then there's the there's another certain kind of richness which is, gets into a cloying range, which is that just kind of overly sickly thick and. Well, I think this is heading. I mean, yeah. this. Uh, I would not be afraid to write cloying on a score sheet for this. Mm -hmm. So that's about it for the off flavors for today that related to malting in particular. Did you guys already cover a string, or do you guys cover a stringency, or is that later? That's later. Okay. So we'll cover that. And in people's experience, have you come across, can you mean beers that we go, oh, yeah, that's under attenuated versus sweet, you know, be it your own beer, a beer that, you know, is commercially produced. Alex's beer. Alex's beer, for example. Yeah. Yes, that gentleman right there. I think it was one that they kind of wanted it to be that way. Though. It was a Firestone Walker, one of those that's in a cardboard box. Oh, one of their uh, blending beers. I think yeah, it was one of them. Perfect examples. A uh, good last sweet Oz, right? So at first I was like, well, maybe it wasn't anything with it. He just got away with the name. But uh, we <laughs> talked to one of the reps came by. And it's just it's perceived as more sweeter because the bitter, is, you know, it's a six percent beer, but it's only like thirty IBUs. Mm -hmm. So you get this upfront sweetness because it's not backed up with that bitterness. Yeah, and, and the, the truth of the matter is, all beer would taste sweet. And that's why you have the bat, you know, either you know, ruets with herbs and spices or hops to produce that that bitterness to offset it and make it a pleasant uh, pleasant drinking experience. Yeah, um, which that was not. Yeah. Um, thank you for the day. Yeah. Sugar, your friend. So let's rinse our glasses. <laughs> it's going to take a little while there. Um, and we'll start into our tastings. We're going to go ahead and start with uh, 14 Scottish ales. They, I mean, we only have one example of a uh, Scottish ale to drink, um, and it's going to be the 14 C's. Uh, yeah. So the the Scottish beers, and there's there's two categories that are like this: the English pales um, or the English ales, and then the Scottish ones. These are strictly expressions of um, how strong the beer is between the the three different categories. So Scottish light. Um, Scottish Heavy and then uh, Scottish Export are all just going to be increasing strengths. This is largely due to, historically, their taxation rates were based on the alcohol content. So they had incentives to either commit to a certain size and, and brand it as that, uh, a size of beer, I guess, in terms of alcohol, um, or go up to the next taxation level, um, and that's where they kind of got the names of the Scottish Light, Heavy, and Export. Um, um, so Scottish beers are 
are basically, okay, Scotland, they weren't very good at growing um, hops, so they didn't um, make a lot of hoppy beers. They had a lot of malting area, um, and they also had peat, which we'll talk about in a bit, um, depending on what this beer does or doesn't have in it. The bad kind of peat, not the good peat. Yeah. So they made great whiskeys and... Um, and they also didn't want to buy a lot of hops from the English because they hated them. Yeah. Um, so they ended up with a very, very malt-forward um, beer using whatever uh, malting techniques they were able to work out over there. Um, so um, so the, the, the basically the styles are differentiated by alcoholic strength, uh, like Mark said, uh, the, the light being 25 to 3.2%, uh, the medium being 32 to 39 and then the Scottish export, which is what we have, at 3.9 to 6.0. Mm-hmm. And you'll see bump-ups and slight bump-ups in color, and then slight bump-ups in uh, IBUs just to balance those out, but not a significant change. The, the bittering should be very, very, very low overall. Um, but once again, just enough to support it and not make it into a sickly sweet product. Okay, so what are people getting on the nose? Toffee. Toffee, yeah. Nice, deeply toasted bread crust. Plummy, dry plum. But light with sugar. Yeah, there's jammy notes in there, for sure. You got any smoke in there? I don't have any smoke, yeah. But obviously, not uh, not really any hop aroma. Mm-hmm. Also not getting the English-type esters, the apple and pear, uh, that you, you get a lot out of, like, an ESP. Mm-hmm. Just a lot darker fruit. Color is just a beautiful deep copper. Um, some of the lighter versions of these, I mean, are in terms of both the, bo- the body and the color, the head will die fairly quickly. It's low alcohol, but um, this, at least the head's kind of lingering around for a little while. It's like my age. That one is It's not peat smoke, though. No, no, it's it's almost more like an apple or something like that. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, way in the background. Yeah, a way just kind of hit the smoke that lingers in my back. A lot of times I'll cool age these beers as well uh, during the brewing process so that you get a a lagering type Mm -hmm. um, uh, fermentation. Mm. Similar to the aroma. And a little less fruit forward, maybe. A little toastier for me. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, was that a, yeah, a little, little cherry character? Mm-hmm. Just a little bit, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Cherry, yeah. Cherry wood? No, no, no. no. Um, very low balancing bitterness to it, for sure. But unlike the Doctor Coors Light, you know, it's not sticking around. It's You're swallowing it, It's there's not a coating on your tongue and your palate. a hint of an earthy hop note, maybe. That's not it. 
It's a little mustiness or something. Um, earthiness, maybe. I just don't yeah. know, but yeah. It's certainly fresher than the English stuff that we've had so far. Mm -hmm. Or held up better, I don't know if it's fresher. Okay, where is this from? Where's it actually? Uh, Bellhaven. Okay. Any new bottles? Yeah. Oh, okay. Apparently. Any other, what else does anyone else get in the flavor? Oh, residual bitterness, but not much. Mostly tastes like red crust. Yeah. Some kind of dark cherries, maybe. Yeah. No, absolutely. That's uh, well attenuated. Mm -hmm. um, probably, you know, I think what I've been told for a great example is like 3% uh, uh, roasted malt mm -hmm. uh, and all the rest pale malt. So that gives you the color. Uh, maybe boil it uh, a little bit extra. You don't want, you know, you're not trying to really. To deepen the color too much, but uh, you know, maybe develop some more complex uh, caramel notes. Mm -hmm. So one of the areas of issue that has popped up with this style before is people adding a bunch of peat malt um, to it, and so they finally, in the 2015 guidelines, put a kibosh or said we're done with peat malt in this style, um, and say if you're going to do that, go put it into the other smoked or the classic style smoked beer. Um, so. Uh, basically, you're going to enter this category. You don't try throwing peat in it anymore. And if you ever do, don't serve it to me. And um, <laughs> and don't add a lot. That's I think more most importantly is it does not take a lot of peat malt to to add a strong plastic yeah. kind of yeah note to it. You guys were talking about crystal malts earlier and um, using 100% base malts. Um, this says it's 100% uh, crystal malt um, Scottish. Huh. Old, old tech. Um, I don't know. Uh, that's, that's kind of cool. So now you can know that it's 100% crystal type. Yeah, except no, it's not. It's 100% Scottish optic and crystal. So optic is a. Oh, sorry. You just blew it on my I was like, that, that can't happen. Really? They get it? Well, what kind of crazy yeast have they got? Because uh, uh, the the thing with because they're kilned, uh, you know, there's no enzymatic activity. So if it was a large percentage, it's just sugar, and it can't be. Uh, it's caramelized sugar, so it can't be eaten by the yeast. Um, uh, yeah. So once again, good, just nice, solid base malt, um, and then just a few things just to kind of tweak it up to get a little extra color in there. Um, yeah, I, I I personally would add a little crystal as compared to just one strictly row or yeah, I think I think you should get that. Yeah. To um, but yeah, a nice light, simple. Um, this is like what percent was this? Five point two. Five point two. Okay. Still finishes with a nice dry character that doesn't end up hanging around forever. Um, but yeah, basically, you could buy one of these and add just enough water and work your way back down through the other two styles yeah. as well to hit the because they're down. because they're below three for you know, yeah. three three to four percent. And we don't get a lot of them over here just because yeah, they don't hold up well. They don't hold up well, and you know, we prefer to be drunk. Yeah. You know, that's the American side. All right, Pete, what do you want to hit next? Uh, Irish red. Okay. All right. Speaking of other people who don't like Britain. <laughs> um, so, 
Irish red ale. Um, um, also going to be a nice kind of malt forward beer um, relative to, to the bittering. Um, going to bring in maybe just a hint more roast character to particularly to tweak this one out working it with a nice base malt uh, a few uh, kind of what's in I guess great British um, hops East Kent Golding typically I guess um, but once again they're not dying to get the they're, they're not the big producers of um, Goldings or hops so they're going to keep it down at a low malty kind of, or keep the balance low towards the malt Dude, as you know, it's a toffee again, but it's a lot of just kind of a, it's a subtle note. <clears throat> After that, just a little coarse bread for me. Yeah, I get sort of that metallic amber note. A low fruity sweetness. Yeah, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Sort of indistinct. Yeah, hint of floral. It's like, a oh. like a fresh cut into a fruitcake mm-hmm. with the bready notes and the. Anything anybody else is getting? I, I can sit at home and do this. I mean, my wife hates me for it. You <laughs> record it too. That's <laughs> yeah, maybe a little dried cherry at the end. So I've got a, I don't know what it is, artificial sweetness thing. I don't want to try to name it. Like, the, like an aspartame kind of. Uh, There's not a real Just kind of smelling a smarty but not tasting it. Maybe that's it. Yeah. <laughs> Deep apple pushing into brown pretty well. Um, really clarity on it too. Note. A little bit of a lightly buttered bread, a um, little toasted buttered bread. Taste. It's a little metallic y thing going on for me. Yeah. It's <coughs> it's the original. 
it's, it's almost prickly as you know, it, I'm getting some adjectives. Yeah, it's just around the side, and I'd, I'd hesitate to say that's because of the small amount of roast malt that they use to get that little color. But I mean, there's, it's just a little. Yeah, and also, but it comes across as sort of a spoiled milk to me as well. Like not a good spoiled milk, stinky cheese, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's sort of, oh, I don't think this is right. Yeah, toasty, but um, dry, and yeah, just it's that finish that just kind of meh. Yeah. And then it hits you in upper gums. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, yeah, upper palate. Mm -hmm. um, little, uh, a little more hot presence, obviously, than the, the Scottish in terms of providing that balance. Obviously, very dry. Um, You might want to add some peat mold to this one. Yeah, blend it with the Scottish. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it's got a moderate, a pretty thin, moderately light body, but then there's just that astringency that kind of. Carbonation's moderately well. Yeah, it's moderately high. high. So yeah, usually it's just a little more. Um, well, I don't know. You can go a little more caramel on these as well. Um, some can pop a little. This definitely didn't really pop out a monstrous ester profile either. No. In terms of the the, the yeast profile. Um, but should be using a little kind of. Uh, Standard base malt, and then just adding a hint, a little car crystal, and then uh, it, to get that nice character redness, you need to add some of the, the roastish um, malt in to, to, to tweak that out. But you don't want to add too much to get a stringency. But I'm not sure where that's really getting. I feel like it's a combination of water and yeah, um, yeah, something else. You know what else is safe on it? Mashing with aluminum. Yeah, mashing with aluminum is very, very important. Um, you'll also see people who brew these kind of lagerish as well um, to end up with a little less uh, kind of a fruity ester profile, but that was pretty nice. in the style because they've been very deliberate about Right. 
uh, going to be our 15B Irish Stout. Uh, so moving into the kind of their, their other famous realm. Um, And we haven't talked about water. Um, I think we covered it briefly, but basically a lot of styles were developed around the ingredients and, uh, and the water profile of, of what. So the, the you know Guinness was coming from Dublin. Dublin has a uh, highly carbonic, correct? It's got a ton of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> a, a lot of mineral content that yeah. lent itself well to brewing with the darker roasted malts. Mm -hmm. So those are the beers that they gravitated and, and figured out were the, the best to... Uh, to brew um, successfully. Okay, so how would people characterize the roast profile that they get on this? Coffee, chocolate. Coffee, chocolate. Bitter chocolate. Dark chocolate. Mm -hmm. dark, yeah, dark, nice, bitter, baker's-ish chocolate, yeah. What else do you guys get with a roast? It's some charcoal. Yep, charcoal. charcoal. <coughs> it's not quite ash. A little caramel, little mm -hmm. caramel macchiato. Yeah, and there's a there's a little bit of a milk note that also opens it into. Yeah, not quite to meat char, but on the roast grains, it's you know they're they're charred black, but the, the husk is cellulose, so literally, you know, the stuff that makes up paper. Mm -hmm. So you're, once you're adding that in, you're getting some mm -hmm. of those notes as well. Yeah. Uh, and there are some dehusked malts like Carafa uh, 2 and 3 um, that don't end up with that. You know, that right. you're still, but and that's where that's coming from. Very, very low earthy hop kind of profile. A little coffee. Mm -hmm. Coffee cream. A nice balance of that little chocolate it uh, carried in there. Uh, this is uh, O'Hara's. So, well, if you've got a flashlight, <coughs> yeah, we're pushing into the darkness where you're barely going to be able to see through it. Even I can barely see the other side. So deep brown, some red highlights. Uh, yeah. Quite fine, beige head. It becomes very difficult to start judging clarity on these. And generally, you're tracking the beam one yeah. on its way through. Mm -hmm. Very few beers with a direct flashlight are completely yeah, imper <laughs> impervious to, but you know, well, I guess with imperial stouts, you can sort of get that, that thick viscosity. Mm -hmm. flavor a lot of the the sweet components uh, are gone or missing mm -hmm. or they're very faint up at the beginning um, they do start to hit you a little later but yeah right away it's, it's a lot of this starts to move into the char for me just, yeah yeah it's espresso roast mm -hmm. coffee uh, yeah so some of the chocolates died down too Thank <laughs> you. 
Pinterest was firm enough to kind of push its way through and work with some of the char character to you know, tie that together. Yeah. Low acidity. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a, almost a, a, not a sour, but an acidic portion of the finish. Um, Side if the char lingering into the finish is, is a bit much. Yeah. It's not, I, I don't, yeah. It's certainly not anything I'd want to have more than a pint of. Mm-hmm. I think just because of that, the, the building of It's the, a little uh, ashy, yeah. Um, really dry, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well attenuated, you know, that's. Mm-hmm. A little um, of that mineral kick, maybe, too. Uh, you know, this is the one everyone says, oh, that's, I can't drink that high gravity stuff. Eh, that's really not high gravity. It's just dark. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the upper bounds for this is supposed to be 1044, 4.5%. Um, so there's a reason it floats on top of everything else. Yeah, moderate body. Yeah, it's pretty. Mm-hmm. You get a little, a little creaminess to it. Um, do people get some astringency on this one? Yeah. yeah, you can feel kind of moving around your palate. Uh, it's not, I, it's definitely there, in, but it's, I, it's, it may be pushing a little undesirable, but yeah, with the with the dark with the roast, you know, they'll always say you know may have a light astringency from the roasted grains, although harshness is undesirable. Mm-hmm. So you know the question is, is it just light or is it moving into, you know, wow, you really used a little heavy hand uh, yeah. adding it to the mash. Twenty percent roasted malt wasn't necessary. Um, I think I get chocolate, but it's more of a, like a roasted cocoa nibs. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's much the, more baker's chocolate than well. Well, no, I mean, I think he's right though. Like, the initial print was more of a little more <laughs> of a baker's chocolate, and this has gotten straight down to the nib kind of perspective. Yeah. The mm-hmm. nib. I'm talking about unsweetened baker's chocolate. Yeah, mm-hmm. we're going we're, we're going down to the nibs. Okay, <laughs> no sugar. <laughs> Ever been down to the nibs before? Um, kind of historically, uh, the well, I guess stylistically, maybe the the differentiating this from a porter. They've always kind of said, in your stouts, you're using roast malt, whereas in porters, you shouldn't be using roast malt. Um, once again, should be should be very, very, very um, nice and light overall. I guess in terms of what's down to the four and a half percent range or, or lower. Um, uh, ingredients using just kind of your normal uh, pale base, but then working it with some roasted barley, possibly some flake barley as well, um, and that's really about it. Maybe some chocolate in there. Um, using a kind of probably a British hop, um, using EKG or East Kent Golding, and um, otherwise just enough, enough bitterness to kind of push through a little the malt and make it a, a, a nice kind of balance. Okay, so now. 
moving into the extra stout, which is going to be a, a step up on this, focusing for them maybe on an export version. Um, so for what we end up seeing over here versus something you see on the craft. Thank you. character change for you guys on this one? It smells sweeter. It smells what? Sweeter. Sweeter? Yeah, black cherry. Black cherry. I thought it was a peter at first. I thought I might smell like peter. Oh no. Maybe a little bit of black licorice for me. Pork charm one's off the other one. Maybe a slight. Kerosene or diesel? Yeah, I didn't know if I was going to get into the burnt rubber kind of. Yeah, just a. Less of the chocolate, more of the the burning. The burning, is that what you said? The burning, make it sound yeah. yeah. less, less multi-dimensional than the... Uh, yeah, than the other stout. There's, yeah, you can get a little, I, I, I can see with the kerosene, maybe get a little more, more of the alcohol too, but it That was got my that initial... Extra. No, I'm actually getting more of that now. Yeah, no, I was, just, I was like, wow, the alcohol's coming off on mm -hmm. this thing. What's the ABV, somebody with a bottle? It's three. No, I'm just kidding. Um, it was like 5.9. 5.9. Licorice. Licorice? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, what are those hard candy licorice -y things? Good and plenty. Good and plenty. Yeah. I was going to say they're crap. Moving into the jet black. Pete's <laughs> one version of those. Yeah. This is, a, again, sort of a light. Dark fruitiness underneath. That dark fruitiness. Well, <laughs> a faint dark fruitiness underneath. <laughs> yeah, we're pushing into that. I can't see my holes, but still, what kind of dark fruit do you think? That's um, bird plum. Stewed, stewed plum maybe. Stewed plum that are then dried. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Killed, pardon me, killed, killed. <laughs> it's a very weird Sunday for you. Yeah, I, get, I get the licorice note. Mm -hmm. uh, it isn't as terrifying as I thought it was going to be when you uh, when you brought it up. There's a there's just a top note of fruit for me. Wait, it's kind of the it is like we burnt fruit skin. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, and then the bottom note is the uh, the all uh, yeah all roast. Mm -hmm. What did you say, John? It just stays there too. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> it lingers and lingers and yeah. Yeah, a little bit of vanilla, too. 
true of vanilla. Mm -hmm. A little more burnt rubber for me. <laughs> but then followed by the prettiness. <laughs> uh, again, some acidity in the finish. You know, to really make that uh, that char pop. Medium body, certainly more than the uh, the O'Hara's. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not over the top, but not full. Yeah, it's like the the kind of kerosene alcohol doing during that. I get it yeah. less in the flavor than I do. But I know, I'm taking it. We second in gas tonight. Yeah, just I mean, a little awesome. Dirt note to it. The fruit for me is uh, sort of halfway between stewed strawberries and strawberry jam. Burnt. And then burnt. <laughs> and then killed <laughs> using the black patent process. Do you feel like they're getting coffee or not? Any any kind of coffee in particular? Folgers crystals. Whole spoon full. It's Starbucks. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. So basically, they brewed it for export. I guess I've always assumed it was because the, uh, the taxation, you know, they could afford to bottle a higher proof product and, and send it, to, but locally um, it didn't make sense because of the tax jump at the next. Uh, but that's complete hearsay. I wouldn't. Uh, yeah, but if you say it with enough conviction, people will believe it. So this is supposed to span between uh, an Irish stout and a foreign extra stout. The foreign extra stouts typically are maybe, to me, are going to be a little fruitier and a little more estery, higher alcohol as well, probably, but. Um, <coughs> yeah, uh, in terms of ingredients, start with that base pale malt, uh, British pale ale, and then kind of work into um, some of your roasted malts in here. Um, what else does it say? Oh, it's a little bit Irish stuff. Um, yeah, just that roasted, maybe a little extra flake, or, um, flake barley in there too. Uh, and just enough kind of hops to kind of offset the um, areas. Yeah, I don't know why that is, or, that you, or what kind of compounds it is that would kind of create that, um, that note. Because um, you're, you're trying to deal with their organic process versus metallic. Um, but for some reason, it just kind of resonates in that. Okay. Nine. Take a second look. All right. Going to get into the big multi. Um, strong even. Yeah, so we're starting off with Doppelbach. Yes, all right. So this is Salvatore from Polliner. 
into a different kind of fruit flavor profile with the aromas. Or what do people get from from the on this? Belgian stuff. Yeah, the fruit really covers up any kind of red nose to that. That it just it's right behind. But it, it's kind of that um, red coming out. Yeah. It's even like a combination of white and normal raisins. Hint of alcohol. It's a little Madeira, but sort of Madeira. Yeah, yeah. Kind of cooked. Mm -hmm. Sort of. No real hot notes to it. No. Got a slight perfumey alcohol. Yeah. Does anyone get chocolates in this or not? No. Dried fruits, especially. The sugars have been condensed and, uh, and darkened a little bit. Provide good clarity longer. Friendly malty, very, very, very fruity again. I, I swear, I'm trying to think of some candy I had as a kid. It's, it's almost like a taffy, you know, uh, uh, and mm. some fruit with that. Um, I also feel like I'm getting a licorice note again, but I don't know. That's just so much candy. Um, yeah. Almost like a maraschino-ish syrup, kind of in there. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, alcohol. So it's not hot. No, but it's, it's present, yeah. and you can feel it volatilizing off <clears throat> in your mouth uh, mm -hmm. and getting uh, uh, no hot flavor. <clears throat> Bitterness is. Fairly low. Um, Some of the major again, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, kind of get, to me, those are candy place augmented with fruit <coughs> as compared to the fruit I was initially getting. Yeah. Definitely balanced sweet. I don't get tremendous legs. Uh. <coughs> Sort of a little sheeting. It's certainly fruitier than the style guidelines call out. I mean, they talk about you know some low dark fruit notes can be possible in the flavor. Um, you know this is really quite fruity. Yeah. There's like there's a hint of a lightly toasted bread at the end. The red crust maple, maybe in particular, but, but yeah, it's, it's partly fruit. Yeah, you know, it's the, the fruit is what's eighty percent of the the flavor. And then yeah, there's a little bit of underlying uh, mm-hmm. um, breadiness. Yeah, little jam, but yeah, lots of candies. Would you go full body or moderate alcohol? The medium full. Yeah. And I feel like, the, you know, mm-hmm. once you get full, yeah. that's pretty maximum. Yeah. Uh, and this is that, that you can have. Mm-hmm. Go get the sugar. <laughs> yeah, low supporting carbonations. This shouldn't be a spritzy beer. Um, that just wouldn't work. Um, and, and you can get a little bit of the alcohol prickle, I guess, but not too much. It's more of the breathing, the alcohol, than anything else. Um, uh, this is a style that you probably would have <coughs> maybe wanted to go with a decoction on, just to get a little extra character on it, but um, the, the interesting thing is about like a, a beer like this is the, the base malt itself is probably just going to be Munich and Vienna and maybe even Little Pills, but just the concert of those all kind of work together and then you like you really just don't need specialty malts on these the, the alcohols and the, the kind of the, the malts are going to do most of the work for it um, so any other last thoughts on it maybe a little hard to finish before, but okay so now we're going to get into Icebach. Um, so an Icebach is going to be basically technically a normal block or a doppelbach? I thought they described it as a doppelbach. A doppelbach that's kind of yeah, frozen, extracted part of the ice from to concentrate it. And uh, yeah, so doppelbach. <coughs> And then served. So basically, looking to intensify all the flavors from the, the beer that we just drank. What's this one weighing in it? Nine point two. Nine point two. Very nice head retention. (laughs) 
So far, it's a lot less fruity. It's a lot more toasty and rich and. Yeah, it's like the full bread toasted spectrum of crust and everything. Yeah. Or what what fruits are anyone picking up? It's something dry. <laughs> Sweet pear. Working mm -hmm. on pears in a can of syrup. Put it at a very low level. A little more restrained overall than the, the Bach for sure. It's about all on that. Flavor is interesting because the alcohol just kind of pushes itself into most of the characters. <coughs> so it's kind of the alcoholic fruit bread. And, um, yeah. Uh, but very little fruit. It's really much more mm -hmm. the, the, the dark, dinner mm -hmm. roll, mm -hmm. toasted well. You draw in or through that, it kicked off a decent amount of alcohol. I mean, it's, you're comparing it to the Doppelbach, yeah. which wasn't as subdued as it should have been. Um, you know, really focusing on the, the malt character versus the, the fruitiness. So this is really, you know, strongly malty. There's a little bit of fruit, um, but it's playing just sort of a, a supporting role, and the alcohol is big and yeah, present. I'll go with the, the plum in the, in the thing for sure. Brandy soap, no? It gets a little soapy as it warms up. The alcohol. Maybe. It, it, it starts carrying a lot. Yeah. <laughs> There's interesting, they have a decent amount of bitterness to, uh, in the kind of lingering the finish. <laughs> Slight char mm -hmm. to it, but maybe that's just the uh, the alcohol hitting me at the end. Yeah. It's mainly in the finish too. Mm -hmm. 
It's almost just like a toasted bread crust, just a little too dusted. Yeah. So it should not be sticky syrup or your plain this sweet, but it's feeling super sweet to me. It's a little sticky. So it's I'm still okay with it. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't. I mean, wouldn't go that far. I, I don't feel like, like it's under attenuation, <laughs> which would be a flaw versus. Boy, this is just a big beer with a ton of malt put into it, um, you know. And the, add the uh, the alcohol sweetness on top of that, and you've sort of got that. With the, that being said, I'd still say this is probably still the, the tw- like ten twenty ish. Mm-hmm. Oh really? Yeah. I don't know. Okay. Yeah, I'm I'm bare minimum. Yeah. You know, it's all coming together. There's a little more lingering sweetness yeah. left in the mouth, but it's certainly nowhere near the the sugared, oh, yeah. Yeah, where the, that just coated. And, and the alcohol helps numb your tongue, so. Yeah. It gets you there. Yeah. Does the job. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's all we need. (laughs) All right. So the lifestyle that we're going to hit is Baltic Porter, which used to be in the Porter family. Um, The 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 conundrum of the Baltic Porter was that it it it's a lager, and it was kind of the bastard child of the the Porter family. so it's going to be working with that, those normal kind of base malts of uh, Munich and uh, Vienna, and uh, and then maybe, maybe, maybe just a, a little bit of a, kind of a, a specialty malt just to provide some extra color, but really, really working off of a simple <coughs> malt kind of comment for that bonus. And not pushing into the normal kind of charge range that we may see a another quarter skeleton. And being firmly oh this is is this eight percent or seven percent? What's the ABV on the exhibits? Chief class again? Why do I keep going? Yeah, light char, but I mean, nothing too pronounced. <coughs> it's actually moderately subdued. Yeah. It's sort of licorice and an indistinct roast. Mm-hmm. dried it or just powder espresso kind of. But they do call out licorice notes uh, in the uh, description of the aroma. Mm-hmm. 
the or opening up to a little chocolate in Somebody calling out ungodly over there? Ungodly, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Heathen. <laughs> well, it's not a Yeah, it's just kind of touches of those notes. Yeah, it's a sweet milk chocolate. Light smoky to it, especially when have you already drank it? Okay. Yeah, get a little more of that. The alcohol pushes a bunch of things through. Get a lot more of the roast in the flavor for me. Yeah, yeah. A little minus and a little uh, mm -hmm. raw oak, untoasted. Mm -hmm. Mixing in sort of with the licorice. Yeah. It's got this weird, it almost is astringent, but then the alcohol burns it off the tongue. Kind of palate. Yeah, there's some lingering astringency in Yeah. The, um, yeah I was going to say the alcohol burns. Yeah. <laughs> you just, like, your tongue is just kind of steaming, and yeah. Little Swissness hot chocolate uh, mm -hmm. in the, the chocolate note. But no marshmallows. Two? Okay. Me. <coughs> Certainly warming. How did they choose the commercial examples for these? <coughs> they debate it and it's <laughs> some of it is because some of them are so I mean I look at the list on that. And, and this is just feels abrasive to me. Mm -hmm. But then you see the Alcachum Porter on there that tastes like freaking chocolate milk. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's just like it's such an extreme. Yeah, I actually wanted the, the Alcachum. Uh, they discontinued the it. Oh, did they? Yeah. The That's why I couldn't find it. I know. It. it makes me sad. Uh, I think it has to do with what everybody can, what a majority of people can uh, But then you'll get weird things like, you know, a lot of the loggers have chuckanut on there. It's because somebody who was involved in writing the guidelines, uh, you know, had access to Chuckanut, and you know, there's a lot of you know, good, and, and not that Chuckanut doesn't deserve it, yeah. but you know, it's it's hard, it's hard. Like there's isn't Weasel Boy, um, yeah. it was in one of them, mm -hmm. and Weasel Boy is a small brewery in Ohio that you know happens to be near you know where Gordon Strong lives, uh, you know, so you know, it, it, you know, and I'm sure it's a great example. It's just hard to. Or some of them like GABF medalists and things like that. Yeah, there's some of that as well, World Beer Cup. Uh, um, and, you know, sometimes when you've got a style that originated, 
um, you know, with something like Anchor Steam, well, you, you can't, I mean, even if Anchor Steam is, you know, deviated over the years, you, you kind of have to call it, you know, you have to at least mention it. Um, so it's sort of a, a crapshoot, I think. Uh, um, but I guess it gives you a wide range for you, for judging, because if, if you're, you've seen this direction, this direction, this direction, and it falls somewhere in there. Yeah, yeah. Well, you always you always have to you know compare what's in your glass, and you go, well, uh, this must be great. Well, you're right. This is abrasive and on the high end, and you're missing a lot of the the rich notes that that you know they call out in the uh, in the description. Um, you know, so you've got to be able to say that. Uh, uh, and uh, oh, so it's you know. <laughs> so you're, you're, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So it's it's a mixed bag of things. Yeah. That being said, I don't know for sure what they do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good old boys club. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. I'm sure there's good old girls too. Let's not be uh, <laughs> sexist in here. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean I think they do the best job that they can. They are yeah. trying to pick things that are available, and you know things change over time. So the the IPA examples from 2008 <laughs> may not reflect what the current market conditions. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Are you saying the Coors Light has changed over time? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> they win the, Who wins the white or the light lager every year? Oh, they switch. <laughs> yeah, they basically <laughs> pass around yeah. to, uh, to different breweries. Yeah. <laughs> um, I yeah, is there anything else anyone gets as it warms up and finishes? <laughs> I, I love a good Baltic Porter a, a lot of time, but yeah, this maybe wasn't my favorite Baltic Porter. <laughs> yeah, just the, the finish on it just kind of gets me. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's slightly tone. medicinal yeah. with the... Uh, the I get to get it to finish. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it'll eventually finish yeah. once you pass out. <laughs> then it'll uh, the end. <coughs> All right, so I think that's it for today, right? Yep. Okay, so for next week, who is a definite no-show if we do it Monday? Okay. Who is a definite no-show if we do it Tuesday? Okay. <laughs> so you're just a definite no-show, aren't you? <laughs> okay. Um, we're going to try to figure this out in the next day or so, what we're going to end up doing for next week. Yeah, maybe throw a... Yeah, pull together, and uh, we can get it quickly answered and figure it out. So if we do, do move it to Tuesday, we're going to be doing it at the. Uh, I don't. Don't know you shake your head at me. No Tuesday, well. <laughs> uh, we'd be doing it over at the uh, either the bistro or the bakery next door, um, because the tap room is open on Tuesdays. Um, the bakery that'll play with our no sense. Yeah. Does anyone look at bread? Yeah. <laughs> what are we doing next week? Oh, yeah. 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 So, all right. Okay. For next week, um, regardless of where we are, we'll go through a few more of the the true and false. We'll we'll do a practice judging. We'll figure out something something for that. Um, two more technical topics that are going to be a. A little. I mean, we'll try to get through them as fast as we can. Um, actually, so if you want to do a practice judging, do we want to say 
come by a little early. Yeah. So what we'll start doing is having beers that are available to taste uh, before class um, to fill out score sheets and to have small group discussions about. Yeah. Um, I don't know how much leftover competition homebrew we have or various things that we can put together. Um, Sorry. But we'll start that maybe 15 minutes ahead of class, yeah. and that way we can still get kicked off at 6, but still be providing. Yeah. Not mandatory, but if you want to come get some practice, um, cover water and yeast, and then go in some kind of some yeasty off flavors. Um, these will actually be some pretty important ones uh, tomorrow. Diacetyl, L-acetylhyde are, are pretty, pretty important ones. And then we'll cover a, a bit of a spectrum of yeast kind of and well, and just in general beers. Um, so we'll do some lagers, we'll do some um, ales, and then we'll do some kind of weedish ales that will um, kind of round out the, the spectrum of that. Um, any any other last thoughts or questions? Okay. I do have a question yeah. about judging in general. Uh, mm-hmm. How do you find competitions to judge at? So the, the easiest way to do that is to go to the BJCP website and they have a <laughs> Over on the right side, they basically have a list of, uh, or a drop down of BGCB or competitions, upcoming competitions. I think it says something like that. And then you can go through and just, what I do is I search for WAP. Um, and it'll list, uh, out, you can go search through all the ones that are upcoming in the in the general area. Um, Mark's name, pop up. No, 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 that, that's on the exams. That's on the exams. I mean, we're talking about the competitions. Um, so th- that's uh, that's where you probably should go. We we try to at least keep uh, a local copy on the Wa Homebrewers site as well. It's just the the best place to go really is the BJCP website to to figure out what's what's going on. Yeah, it's just and it basically goes through chronologically where every competition is in the country or the world, I guess at this point. Um, that's a BJCP registered one that's open for uh, judges to kind of come in. Most competition, once you're in the program, most competition organizers will email you a month or two out from the competition saying, hey, we'd love to have you here because they really need you to come. Um, and then a week out, they'll say, hey, hey we, we really, really need you to come, come here. <laughs> Seriously. And then a couple of days out, hey, we got a few more entries than we got judges yeah. for. <laughs> and then there's the I will sell my child, so if yeah. you guys show up message. Um, so that'll, once you're in the program, and that's probably going to be a half year from now once they have you fully into all their lists, um, you'll get those emails. In the meantime, if you go to the site, and then it'll have a link, it'll say, here's a competition organizer, click on that, it'll have their email, you can send them, hey, I'm interested in judging, and if they turn you away, I don't know what to tell you about that. Um, they, they just say, I'm in training right now, um, and they yeah, should. You be should happy. be. They'll hopefully get you in touch with their judge director, and once they've done that, yeah, just let them know. You know, that's, uh, I don't have a lot of experience. They'll pair you up with somebody that uh, that does, and uh, yeah. you know, yeah. I, I don't know a single competition organizer out here who would not take uh, someone in particular who's actually training, who tends to be someone a little more focused on actually understanding the styles and the person who's done it for. Oh, I've got this covered. I've got this covered. So. Um, yeah, anything else? Okay, so we'll figure out where we're going to be a week or a week and a day from now. And um, I still need to encourage you guys. I don't know if people are actually doing or reading ahead. Take the time, just do that little reading ahead. Um, I think this week is 
probably also one of the, the, the tougher weeks. But after this, we start to get down there in terms of the actual reading amounts. Yeah. Um, need to work your way through the, the style guidelines and need to work your way through the um, study guide, but um, it's... And drink beer. And drink beer. And occasionally just... If you need to grab more sheets, take them home with you, grab some more sheets and practice filling them out. Blood light, I don't care. Um, just just practice. And it, you can even do things like grade off. Like, all right, here's a, here's a Bach. I'm going to try to grade it as a Baltic port. Okay. And see how it actually would you think it did come through. Um, I don't recommend doing that. I'm not going to do too much of that for the exam, but um, yeah. Good. Good. Okay. Do you the, the beers that are made by the participants in the class? Sorry? Oh, shoot. You know, we haven't really even brought that up. Yeah. So <laughs> that's a good point. Thank you. If you've actually brewed one of these, you have it on tap, and you want to bring it in, in particular for one of the classes that, um, uh, that may be covering that style, I always do that. If you want to bring it in for us to taste beforehand and taste with the group, by all means do that. Just shoot either either of us a note, and we'd be happy to do that. We have to do that. Forget about that. So yeah. Um, but it's 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 good feedback, and the nice thing is that we we get to talk to you about the recipe in particular, what you did. So yeah, I'd re recommend if you're going to do that, bring a recipe with you so we can talk about that. If you've got notes on your brewing process, that'd be great. If you don't, don't worry. Um, Top secret. But yeah, if 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 there's something that's going to line up with something we we're going to cover that week, that's a great week to do it. If you still just want to do it some other time, it's that's great as well. Yeah. Commercials, commercials, okay too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's okay. So you said it's over. <laughs> you said a little before class each time. Now you're gonna. Yeah, we'll try to we'll try to get in be ready at least by like five forty-five, and we'll probably have a few beers ready to go for people to to grab and just sit down and fill out a score sheet, and we can talk to you or taste along with you, and um, yeah, and also good practice. To, yeah. uh, and then, I mean, when do you start sort of asking people to bring in filled out score sheets? Um, so once well, probably in the next few weeks, if you want to start bringing in score sheets, we'll take them home and we'll provide comments. Okay, we'll say, hey, this is great. You may have missed this. As if we were a grader on the exam, trying to make sure that you have everything covered, and and point those things out. We'll so you, we'll get back to you in five, six months. Six months. Six months or so. So it'll be after you take the exam, um, and you've maybe moved out of state as yeah. well. Um, but no, we'll, we'll we'll work on. We'll, we'll get those back to you the week afterwards, and um, yeah, or by email. Yeah. Um, but we can do this with any beer we want. Any beer you want. Yeah. So I mean, if you want to do it while you're in class, that's fine. If you want to do it, just hey, hey, I drank uh, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. Here's here's my cup. Thoughts over here's what. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we can't judge you on on your perceptions. Oh no, you clearly got that wrong. I've drunk yeah. Sierra Nevada Pale. I know all about it. But we can. Uh, we can at least give you feedback on the, the, the what you've written in yeah. terms of describing yes. the beer and mm -hmm. feedback, and uh, I'd say, oh, you know, maybe you really want to delve a little more here. And yeah, so I did a few over the weekend, mm -hmm. and you know, tried to write out everything in, in a way that makes sense. But I did, didn't assign scores to anything because I'm like, well, I'm not sure what is that a seven or you know what I mean that. That's even harder than trying to pick out the flavors. So yeah, I'm not sure. Is that you want that on there too? Uh, you yeah. can, or I mean, you know, you know, frankly, the the score is rather. I mean, if you don't want to put scores, that's fine. That you know, we can give feedback on the uh, the description and maybe even go. You know, I would guess based on what what you filled out. You know, this is a 34 point beer, give or take. So you mm -hmm. know, 
However, if you really don't want to assign a score, maybe off to the side, write down what you were worried about or what you did like about the, the aroma in particular that made you feel good or bad about the style. And we can maybe help you as a result. Hey, so if you didn't like these kind of aspects, we would have maybe marked it down three or four points. Um, and once, we'll, we'll be happy to do that. So if you want to start bringing in stuff, we'll take it home at yeah. this point. Um, but maybe one or two weeks from now, I may actually try to give you guys homework to bring us back something for sure. Or we bring out the ruler. Yeah. yeah, well, Mark used to give like $10. Yeah, $10 for in. everyone. That, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Anything else? Okay, great. Stop the recording. Yeah. So can you sort of take charge of hurting us to get everything put away?